Good morning. If you brought a Bible with you or using the Pew Bible, go ahead and open it to the uh, second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in chapter 9 this morning. <clears throat> if you've been with us or uh, this is your first time here, we are doing a series this fall on the book of Exodus, going through um, the book of Exodus. Not all of it, we'll get through all of it, but, but um, a, a good part of it. And as you see on the cover of our bulletin, the theme here is from slavery to worship. Looking at Israel as a slave community, as they are in Egypt, and how God is calling them, a people, from something to something. And that's the same thing he's doing with us. He's calling us from something, and he's calling us to something. And ultimately, that too is himself. Uh, that we may have freedom to worship not all these other things in this world that, that, that we feel like or think will give us value and worth, but to worship him, the source of true life. And so this morning we come to uh, the section of the plagues. This is chapters 7 to 11. And instead of reading five chapters to you this morning, like what else do you have to do, right? This is, um, I'm going to pick four verses. Uh, you'll see on your bulletin that uh, we were going to do some readings from chapter 7. I'll mention those briefly, but we're not going to read those. So uh, having said that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 9, verses 13 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks for this morning. And we pray now that you would do a miracle, a wonder. And, and by that, we pray that you would soften our hearts. Uh, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we may see and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. And that you would soften our hearts as good soil so that as the word goes out, such as seed going out into good soil, so the word would penetrate our hearts and we would produce a fruit and leave here changed people. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, by now, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything, uh, you've either willingly or unwillingly seen or heard the movie Frozen. Uh, this is Disney's latest gazillion dollar moneymaker. Um, the true winner of Christmas last year. And uh, I think when it came out on DVD, we, we got to watch it about 122 times in that first week, I think is, is what, we, what we counted. Um, if you haven't, it's a great story. It's a story about two sisters, Anna and Elsa, which bodes well in my family because we have four girls. And in the movie, the newly crowned queen Elsa accidentally uses her power to turn things into ice and to curse her hometown. And then her sister, Anna, teams up with this interesting crew of people uh, and animals and a snowman to save her sister in town. 
Well, throughout the movie, I've learned that there are several subliminal messages and symbolisms going on that help tell major themes in the story that Disney would want you to know. And one of these themes is about revealing who you truly are, who somebody really is. And Disney cleverly uses gloves to do this. So, for example, in the movie, in order to to control Elsa's powers, she wears gloves. They, I don't know, conceal. They don't reveal who she really is. And so, in order to control that, she keeps these gloves on. But in her coming out scene, in her scene where she is finally free to let it go, you actually see her literally taking the gloves off because this is who she is. This is, this, is, this is who she wants you to know that she is. This is the real Elsa. Consider another example. Consider Hans. Hans, uh, this is the good-looking, charming character that you immediately fall in love with um, when he comes onto the scene. He swiftly wins over Elsa's sister, Anna's heart with his charm and his good looks and all that. But in the end, we know, spoiler, spoiler alert, that he's dishonest. We know that he has other things in mind. What he really wants is he wants to be uh, the king of Arendelle. And so he, he basically lies to Anna and tells her whatever it is she wants to hear so that he can get what he wants. And, and one of the ways that we know this is that when you meet Hans, he's wearing gloves. And he's never taking them off. He doesn't take them off until he's actually there by the fireplace telling Anna, this is who I am. And so there we have Hans' real identity coming out there for us. This is who I am. This is, this is who I This is my true identity. Very, very clever, those Disney people. Um, I have to be honest, in the first 122 viewings, I did not pick up on that. But um, there's hope for, uh, for people like me. Last week, we were in chapter 6. And as Darwin said, everything from this point on is really, and can really be considered an exposition of who God is of him revealing who he is, not just to Israel, but to the world. But unlike the movie Frozen, God has never really been concealing his true identity. It's a, it's a necessary, necessary um, point to make. He has never been hiding who he is. In fact, of, of all the characters so far, he is the one who has been upfront and honest about everything. In fact, he's been telling Israel, you will be slaves in Egypt since Genesis. And now he's telling Israel, this is how this is going to happen. This is how I'm going to free you. This is who I am. He has never been concealing himself. He's only been revealing himself and making himself known. The real problem, the real problem in our text this morning, the burden, if you will, is not that there's this God of the Bible who is unknowable like so many other gods. The real problem isn't even a Pharaoh and slavery, uh, and the inability of Israel to go and worship their God. The real problem in our text is that Israel, God's treasured possession, we heard about last week, doesn't even know who their God is. That is the real problem. Israel does not know who their God is. And this has created an identity crisis of epic proportions. Like any slave community, they don't know who they are. And if you don't know who you are, if you don't know who you belong to, then you have very little hope of ever believing that you are of some value. That you are really worth something. That you are loved. And so we hear, God, have you forgotten us? 
which has been the chorus of Israel up until this point. Have you forgotten us? Have you given up on us? Are we loved? Has been their cry. And all of these questions that Israel is asking are really asking a much larger, more fundamental question that we have to get to this morning because everybody in here and everybody out there is asking this fundamental question. And it's the question of, am I loved? Am I loved? That's a question that Israel is asking. That's a question that everyone is asking because it's not a biblical question. It's not a Christian question. It is a human question. And it is a question that all of us are asking through all types of avenues and arenas. And and in asking this question and, and hope to find it an answer, we are just attaching ourselves to everything and anything that will possibly give us an answer. I mean, we will attach ourselves to boyfriends and girlfriends in the hopes of finding out or, or, or receiving some type of affirmation that we are loved. It can be our looks. Maybe this time somebody will notice me. It could be our jobs. Maybe my performance and what I do will give me this value and worth that will suffice. And so we attach ourselves to it in order to hope, in order to find our self-worth and value. The most obvious place, though, that our culture today is, is asking this question, am I loved, is through our sexuality. Not just with gay marriage today, which is obviously a hot topic, but also with the ever-increasing increasing addiction and accessibility to pornography. We think this is a conversation <clears throat> over the definition of marriage, for example, but it's not. It is, as one pastor puts it, a question over what it means to be truly human. It is a question that at its heart is asking, am I loved? And our culture today just believes that the answers to that question can be found by attaching ourselves to our sexuality, to marriage, to any other thing that will tell me and give me an answer to that question Am I loved? Does anybody know who I am? But the further that we grow away from knowing God, the further that that distance grows, the more we become enslaved to these things, the louder and more terrifying that question, am I loved, becomes because of the silence that is left there by the very things we go to in life to give us that answer. But as the early church father Augustine wrote about 1,500 years ago, and it's just as true today as it was then, is you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You might say that the Bible is answering the the question, have you forgotten about us? Am I loved? On every single page of Scripture. And it ends with a resounding yes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The cross says definitively that I have not forgotten about you, that you are mine and that you are loved and that I'm coming for you. And so where Israel is literally a slave community, they are slaves We become enslaved too to the things that we attach ourselves to, hoping our hearts will find rest, hoping that we'll hear those things. And then people say back to us, I know who you are. You have value. You have worth. You are loved. 
Now, if we stop right there for a second, I realize that is, that's a lot. Um, in the words of Marty McFly, that's heavy, Doc. That is heavy. Listen, I say this this morning to start here, to say that if we're going to understand the plagues as anything other than great cinematography, then we're going to have to get into Israel's shoes for a bit. We're going to have to, have to really work to, to feel and understand what it is that they're going through and the questions that they're asking. And that is a very uncomfortable place to be. It's a very scary place to be in the shoes of Israel. And it's uncomfortable because it's who we are too. But when we do, we'll see loud and clear that the plagues, some of the most creative stories of our childhood, really are the beginnings of a God shouting to his people, this is who I am. I have not forgotten you. You are loved. And I'm coming for you. We need the same thing that Israel needs this morning. We need to become unslaved, if you will, to the things that we think will bring us life and be attached to the only source of life, which is God himself. Welcome to the Exodus. This morning, I want to cover five chapters and two questions. What the plagues are saying to the world or to Egypt about Yahweh. What the plagues are saying to Israel or to us about who he is, too. <clears throat> so let's take the first one. What are the, the, the plagues? And, and these are, are, are more re, um, referred to in the Exodus account as signs and wonders. And it's really important that we hold that language. We'll see that at some point. What are these things, these signs and wonders, saying to Egypt? What are they saying to Pharaoh? What are they saying to the world? As I said earlier, the purpose of the plagues is not to wipe out Pharaoh. It's not to end the Egyptians. But the purpose is about revealing who Yahweh is. It is about self or divine, divine self-revelation. So you might be asking, how do locust swarms do this? And I appreciate that question this morning. How do swarming gnats and boils and turning the Nile River into blood, how does this reveal who God truly is? Well, those are great questions. I want to give you five things that the plagues do that reveal who God is. These aren't points, so relax. But they're five things that in turn show Israel and us how much, in fact, we are loved. If you grew up in the 70s or 80s, the Rocky movies hold some type of grip on your imagination and childhood development. Sadly, the first Rocky I ever saw was Rocky number four, which was this amazing piece of, of, of film that, um, you know, Rocky faces Ivan Drago, the Russian uh, six, foot, six monster that they create to come box. And, uh, you know, when I was, I guess it was six or seven or eight when this movie came out, I, was, I wasn't too quick on picking up the political uptake as a country in the midst of a Cold War. But when you watch it, and I watched it actually this week, it was on TV, the political overtones are so loud and so clear, uh, it's almost comical at this point. But yes, it's America, Rocky, fighting the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, and that's Ivan, and America wins, right? That's what, this is, that's what the whole movie is all about. 
Well, in one sense, if that does it for you, you can think of the plague narratives in the same way. It is a fight between two parties, and those parties are representing very, very, very different things. Different worldviews, different ways to think about life, different claims about who God really is. And so in one corner, we have Pharaoh, a God. In fact, as far as the world at this point in time is concerned, the, the, the most powerful of human deities that is around and then in the other corner, though, there's Yahweh, the God of the underdog, the slave people, Israel. At first, everything that we begin to witness concerning these plagues is a face-off between two gods. And we see this very clearly in the first, second, and the fifth plagues. That these are confrontations, at the least, between gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. The first, second, and fifth plagues attack specific deities that Egypt worshipped. For example, consider that first one, uh, changing the Nile River into blood. You know, I don't know if you asked this this morning, um, but why start there? Why would, why would you start there? I mean, it's kind of random. But let me suggest this. G- or, or God starts there because Jesus is to us as the Nile is to Egyptians at this point in time. That is, the Nile is the giver and sustainer of life for them. It is a deity that is worshipped. And as Herodotus wrote, as a Greek historian back in the 5th century BC, he gives it, he personifies it, the Lord of sustenance is what the Nile is referred to. The one who causes the whole land to live through his provisions. His provisions. This is the Nile, the source of life It was a God. But when Yahweh turns it to blood, two things happen. Everything in it dies. Food. The the water is no longer able to be used for cooking or drinking. That's water. And so with one quick final blow here almost, the question of who is the giver and sustainer of life is answered already. It is not Egypt. It is not the Nile. It is Yahweh. The second plague brings frogs. Uh, this, again, has a lot to do with Egyptian mythology. And I can appreciate this morning, if you're not that interested in learning about Egyptian mythology, but just to say that one of the gods that Egypt worshipped was a frog. Uh, it was actually the female goddess who had a frog's head, and she was married to the, the, the other god who was the creator and sustainer of life. Um, very interesting things. But for God to bring frogs is, is another play on how... There is no power in these things. If frogs is what you want, if frogs is what you think is, what, what is it is that you worship, I will, I will overwhelm you with them. And the fifth plague hits livestock. Another, again, another hit on Egyptian deity. So first, the plagues directly attack those deities that Egypt worshipped, establishing Yahweh's power over all other gods, which make the plagues not random. And this is my point in this first little point. Uh, they're not random. They're extremely personal. Extremely personal for Egypt. So that's the first thing. Second, we see that the plagues reveal God's power and control over all creation. During the plague narratives, there's a little side plot going on with Pharaoh's magicians. If this were a play on Broadway, this is where the com- comedy or the comic relief would come from. 
And in the first couple of plagues, interesting enough, the magicians that Pharaoh calls before Moses and Aaron, they are actually able to duplicate, to some degree, those plagues. They're able to turn the water into blood. They're able to produce frogs. Interesting enough, they can't turn the blood back to water, and they can't make the frogs go away. But that's another story for another day. All is lost, though, when we get to this third plague, this plague of gnats. Which really solidifies, believe it or not, Yahweh's power over all creation. Gnats are an interesting choice of plague. I would not have come up with this. I would have come up with a plague of tigers to run into Egypt and just, let's just get this over with. Let's get this over with. But that's, I'm not God. And, um, and, and, and we didn't need to say that to know that. But this is not about wiping Israel off or Egypt off the face of the earth. This is about revealing, again, I'll come back to that, who God really is. So to the question, why gnats? I think the magicians understand, and I think this is why they begin to wonder during this plague, the third one, is this the real God? Is this Yahweh, this God of Israel? Is this the real one? You can imagine uh, just, uh, you know, your, your normal uh, every, everyday Egyptian hanging outside, watching these gnats come in. Wondering, look, who has control over gnats? Who cares enough about gnats to even consider them? Might be something that somebody that day thought. Frogs we get, they are special, but gnats? It's almost as if God is already communicating that to the least of these I care about, and even them are under my sovereignty and my control. But gnats, unlike the first two plagues, are so personal because they just sort of swarm and cover all the animals and the people. In fact, it's so personal. I want you to listen to how the magicians describe it. The text says, since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians turned to Pharaoh and said, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord said. So the plagues reveal God's power and control over all creation from the greatest of these, the Nile, to the least of these, a gnat, because this is who Yahweh is. Thirdly, the plagues show God's closeness, his presence in the land. This is just, this gets better and better. In most ancient mythology, gods are known to be transcendent. Who's going to create a God that isn't out there, right? That isn't beyond and above everything else. But human-created deities, while transcendent, are rarely close or imminent. They are rarely involved in human life. In fact, most ancient mythology uh, you read about is, 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 uh, deals, as far as interactions between deities and humans, is, is, look, your job is just not to be noticed, right? Your job is not to disturb or to um, anger, if you will, the God, so that he somehow notices you and brings all kinds of judgment upon the land, From what we know of the Egyptian deities, though, this is a little different. Many were involved in the lives of Egyptians. At least the people understood their gods to be close and to be involved in their day-to-day activities. Thus, the plagues exist to communicate not just Yahweh's transcendence, but his eminence too, his closeness, his dwelling in the land. Enter the flies. Now, why would flies do this? It's not so much the flies themselves. But it's what the text says God does with this fourth plague. The stop in this narrative is special because in it, not only do the magicians, um, not only have they sort of disappeared and run out of tricks here, 
But we read for the first time that Yahweh, quote-unquote, sets apart, which is going to be a very important word moving forward for Israel. Sets apart Israel as a people. And chapter 8, verse 22 says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and between your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. See, this God even tells you and knows the time and date of when these plagues are coming. But this sign is significant for Egypt and Israel for two reasons. One, this God, Yahweh, is here to dwell among you. He is in your midst. He is in the land. Something that we know a lot about because of Jesus, but you know, that's, we're not there yet. This is, this, is, this is huge stuff. But second, Yahweh is picking a team here. Right? He's picking a team to side with, and it's not the one that's loaded with all-stars. Right? It's not the hot girl at the pool that gets all the tension. It's not the new up-and-comers or the overachievers that everybody wants to be around. This God sides with the slaves. Why? Verse 22, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. His glory, y'all. That's what this is about. Don't be distracted. This is all about his glory and who he is. So the plague showed God's presence in the land, not just, hurl, not just by hurling random catastrophic events at people because that's what gods do. But he demonstrates his love and care for Israel and setting apart and protecting them from the judgments coming upon Pharaoh and his people. And by protecting Israel, he visibly shows his presence there. This gets to the fourth thing, which reveals another important characteristic of God that we learn through the plagues. And that is, and this was a little bit of a surprise to me, that the plagues are grace. And you have to sit there and ask yourself, what? How are plagues (laughs) grace? And just for a second, can we just consider the number of chances? Because we kind of know the stories. Can we consider the number of chances that God gives Pharaoh to repent And we could kind of come back from that a little bit, right? How many times does he give Israel a chance to repent over the course of their life? But from the very beginning, God has been telling Pharaoh, this is how this is going to end if you stay on this path. I didn't read chapter 7 there in in the bulletin because I just, for time. But that is a prelude to this whole narrative of the plagues and the beginning of the Exodus movement. And it's a prelude because in it, God foreshadows everything that's about to happen. He tells Pharaoh in Egypt, this is what will happen if you do not repent. And the scene is basically Moses and Aaron. He gave them this sign to throw down their rod and it would become a snake. And so Pharaoh summons his musicians and they throw down their rod too and it becomes a snake. But Israel's snake, according to the Hebrew, is bigger. And the actual word there, they say, is that this snake does what? It swallows up the snake of Pharaoh in Egypt. And it's as if God is saying to Pharaoh right here and there on the beginning pages of this narrative event, look, if you are not going to repent, then it won't just be the snake that you somehow produced being swallowed up. It'll be you and your armies and your nation swallowed up. It's the exact same word that we see in chapter 15 here when those waters come crashing down. But of course, Pharaoh's hard, his heart was hard. See, this God gives us chances. And not just, not just good people like you and me. He gives his enemies chances. And that is something that I don't know that I can really understand and comprehend. That is, that is incredible. We see this 
also very clearly in the seventh plague, hail. I know you guys were interested in this, so I left it in here. Look, God says this about hail, not hail, but hail. I'm, tomorrow, I'm going to bring this. This has never happened in Egypt before, ever. It's never snowed in Egypt. And, uh, but here's the deal. Whoever's left outside is going to die. So this is happening tomorrow, and you need to bring in all your livestock. He's talking to Pharaoh. You need to bring in all your livestock. You need to bring in all your people because it's coming tomorrow, and anybody left outside will die. He even gives those who are his enemies a chance to save themselves. That is grace and mercy. And you've got to begin to wonder how attractive could this be or could have been to Egyptians at this point in time who only know of a short-tempered, hard-hearted Pharaoh. That God could be a God of grace and mercy. I wonder if we would say the same, that it's attractive to see that. So we've seen the plagues, how they reveal God and who he is over all other deities. We've seen how he reveals himself over the powers of all creation from the Nile to the Nat. And we've seen how the plagues reveal God's presence in the land, that he is close, that he is near to his people. And we've seen how the plagues show Yahweh to be the God of grace, giving even his enemies time and chances to repent and save themselves. Well, lastly, and probably the most difficult for us to get our arms around, and I would have liked to have let this out, but that wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been faithful to you, is how the plagues and, their, and these narratives show us that Yahweh is even sovereign over the human heart. What are we supposed to make of all this business about hardening Pharaoh's heart? Now, for sure, this topic deserves more than the two minutes that I'm going to give it. But for now, I want you to see how it fits in the narratives here. As said, the purpose of the plagues is divine self-revelation. Who is this God? Yahweh. If Yahweh is the one true God, then truly he is sovereign over everything. And see, we can't, as people begin to look at the plagues in, in the scriptures and say, yes, of course he turned the Nile and he did turn the Nile to blood. He's God. Of course he brought all of these things. He can cause night to fall whenever he wants. He's God. We can't sit here and say that this morning and not put our own hearts and lives under the same sovereignty and control. Why? Well, it's simple. Because it's about the glory of Yahweh and no one else. For Yahweh shares his glory with nobody. And the reason why we read the text that we read this morning is because this is the central purpose statement of the entire plague narratives. And I'm going to read it for you again, beginning in chapter 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, literally on your heart, Pharaoh. And on your servants and your people, so that, that's the key word, you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I have put out my hand for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's the point. Pharaoh is no match for Yahweh. But the rub that you and I have this morning is neither are we, neither am I. And all of us have to die that death of self-autonomy. 
of self-rule that ultimately keeps us from life, from knowing God and attaching ourselves to him. Look, I'm not asking any of us this morning to sort of come to our final conclusions while we sit here and listen about God's involvement with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Paul in Romans comes back to this and he simply says, look, if God, this is God. If he's God, he can do whatever he wants to. And, and that's I'm fine with that. God is God. He can do whatever he wants to. But I would, what I want to suggest this morning, wherever you are wrestling with this point, is that we are not allowed to create a God who doesn't harden the heart of Pharaoh for his own purpose and for his own glory. And to that end, I would simply invite any of those who would have questions about this to pursue those questions with either any of the elders or, or people on staff here at this church. Because I know that this opens an enormous amount of doors with questions, as it should. But as I kind of slowly move away from that, I want us to take just a second to just sort of stand in awe of what it is that we've seen here. Maybe put yourself in the shoes of Israel, maybe Egypt, probably Israel. And these nine plagues that come out, to stand in awe of what they say and what they reveal about a God who so relentlessly cares and loves his people. If the plagues are divine self-revelation, do you like what you see? Is this beautiful to you? Everyone here probably has seen a good fireworks show, maybe on the 4th of July, I don't know. But if you go to Disney... Every night at 9 p.m. in the Magic Kingdom, they deliver a fireworks show that will knock your socks off. And all you can do is just watch it and be in awe. That's all you can do. Disney actually calls their fireworks at night their, their kiss goodbye. I thought this was interesting. Because for Disney, this is often the last thing, the last experience that their people have at the park before they leave. And so they cutely call it their kiss goodbye. The plagues in Exodus, I think, function in in a very similar way this morning for Israel. We need to be left in awe. But the only difference to Disney is that it's not the kiss goodbye. It is the the big hello. It's I'm here. I'm here. And I know who you are. And I haven't forgotten about you. You are loved, and I am coming for you, is what these say to Israel. And this gets to me where I want to leave you this morning, where we'll close, of what these things are, what these plagues could be saying to us this morning as well. As mentioned earlier, what these signs and wonders say is that I have not forgotten you. And to put it another way, the plagues are God's verbal shout from the back of a room that says, I know who you are. You are mine. A friend of mine shared a story uh, several years ago. It's it's a hard, hard story. You almost can't believe these things are true, but you can look it up. But it's a story about World War II prisoners of war who were so emaciated and weak because of their being captive that they couldn't even remember who they were. And so the story reads, in France, where some of these prisoners were, the response to the problem of finding out who who's these POWs belonged to, who they were, was to run pictures of them in the, in the newspaper, hoping that someone who knew them would recognize them. And in the paper they said, on this certain date, we will, we will, we will have all these POWs at this French opera house in, in hopes that people would show up and claim them. 
And so as, as, as the story goes, the day came for the meeting of the opera house. After running the pictures in the paper, large crowds gathered. That's a good sign. And one by one, these men would walk out on the stage. They would step up to the mic and they would ask this question. Does anybody know who I am? Imagine what it would have been like in that opera house for just a moment. I can't fathom. The hurt and the hope that would fill your voice as you lean towards the mic and ask, do you know me? Can you tell me who I am? The pregnant pause as you scan the crowd, seeing if anyone responds. The joy that would flood your heart as the back of the room, at the back of the room, someone stands and rushes up and says, I know you. This is who you are. How would that moment begin to shape all the other moments of your life? Well, this is where Israel is right now. They have been stepping to that mic, as it were, for over 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And now someone is calling to them. What these signs and wonders are doing or saying to Israel, what they are revealing about God is who he is. And who he is is somebody who keeps his promises. Somebody who knows who they are, who has not forgotten and is saying that you are loved. And I am coming for you. Now, if this is only the beginning, if this is only the hello of, of God to Israel in this Exodus movement, how much more for us when Jesus shows up on the pages of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? If the magnitude of the plagues for Israel said, I have not forgotten you, you are loved, I'm coming for you, how much more the cross of Jesus and his resurrection that now through faith in Jesus, we can now become detached from the things that enslave us and now be attached to life itself, the giver of life. And now our hearts can find rest, the rest that it's been looking for in so many other places. The good news for us today is that through the real sign and wonder, as John in his gospel calls it, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can not only be attached to life, but it gets better we are also promised through him, and you've got to get this. We are promised an end to the fear of silence. And that's the silence we fear that will follow when in all those other avenues, when we step up to that mic on that stage and ask, whatever it is, do you know me? That that silence will never, ever happen. That the cross and the resurrection is just this resounding hello saying, listen, I know who you are. You are loved. I am coming for you. If Israel has any hope of going from a slavery to worship community, they are going to be freed. They will need to know that this is who God is. And they will need to know that this is how much they are loved too. And friends, the same is true for us today. If we have any hope of freedom, of moving into worship of the one true God, we will, we will have to know that, that the cross and resurrection of Jesus is God's final display of him telling us who we are and of him telling us how much we are loved. My prayer for you this morning is that the real signs and wonders of Jesus, his death and his resurrection for you, would be the voice that would flood your heart. More so than any other voice in this world that bids for its, own, for its affection, that it would flood your heart as the voice in the back of the room saying, I know you. I have not forgotten you. This is who you are. 
you are loved and that we would go no other place for that validation. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the ways, the creative ways, the, the rational ways even, the, it's the ways that only you can come up with that reveal who you are and draw us to yourself. I pray that we would see that this morning in swarms of gnats, of locusts, of turning water into blood. And perhaps maybe it would, it would send us forward to a time when your son came to, to, to live and to, to carry his mission out on this earth where he too turned water into something, where he turned it into wine actually as a taste of who he was, the real bridegroom who has come for his people. Would that be the truth that our heart lays hold of this morning? Um, to know, in fact, that we are cared for and loved, uh, where we go for our worth and our value and our identity. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.